Uh, tonight, we are not in First Peter, as you might have recognized uh, from uh, Pastor Nathan's scripture reading. We are in Matthew 22, and what I hope to do tonight is sort of uh, take you through this passage and hopefully uh, connect it with a few others that I think might perhaps be ones that you're not expecting. Um, this sermon has been inspired, I think, by my own study and by my own sort of wrestling with some of the passages uh, that I want to present to you tonight. And um, it might be a little bit different as we're just going to survey some different, uh, two, two specifically different passages. But what I want to do is just really impress uh, upon your hearts the truth of the scriptures and how wonderful it is that it is all uh, connected and that it's all driven by the fact that the Holy Spirit wants to impart to you and I uh, the story of how God saves sinners. Have you seen that picture that's been going around Facebook? If you don't have Facebook, you probably haven't, but that's fine. It's, it's this wonderful sort of timeline where it shows you all these different promises and different assurances and truths of Scripture. And it connects the dots and how they are either fulfilled in the New Testament or repeated and all these sorts of things. And if you look at it, it just looks like this big white streak. Because it's all these different things that are being repeated and, and talked about and fulfilled from the Old Testament into the New Testament. I'll have to get it and share it with you guys because it's really fascinating to me. And what I see from that is that there's... One author of scripture. Yeah, there's a bunch of different authors over the course of you know thousands of years that wrote the scriptures. The, you know, if you study this, if you study how the Bible came to be, you know that. But the true in, inspiration, the author of scripture, is God Himself, and He's telling one message and He's asserting one truth, which is the fact that man can't be his own savior. And such is what I, I think we have in the scriptures for us tonight is the fact that we have this very interconnected book called the Bible. In Matthew 22, as Pastor Nathan read, we have this really, I think, fascinating, really intriguing scenes from Jesus's life. I think, would say one of the most intriguing uh, because of just the context of what's going on. It's the scene of the Pharisees' inquiry of Jesus regarding his views of Caesar and his taxes. Which was, of course, a very hot-button issue uh, in this day, as taxes still are today. <laughs> um, but I would say that uh, the, the context, while it is very sort of specific to this moment in Jesus' life, as he is going towards the cross, as we know he is entering, this is part of Holy Week. He has just, uh, in, uh, according to the Mark timeline, if you, that's the one I mostly follow, but if you follow that, he has just uh, come out of, of cleansing the temple and he is about to get asked all these questions by the Pharisees, by the Sanhedrin, by uh, the Herodians as well. And what we have here is just the beginning of those sort of inquiries that these political religious groups make of Jesus. But what I hope to show you that far from being just a simple dialogue between Jesus and these uh, sort of religious and political figures concerning the lawfulness of being taxed. I think the words of Christ here specifically, I think, proceed to remind us of one of the most uh, just fundamental and resonant truths in all of Scripture. And that's what I hope to show you. So let's walk through this text in Matthew 22. Matthew 22:15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him, that is Jesus, in his talk. This uh, now we have here. 
The Pharisees and the Herodians, they are conspiring and counseling together how to entangle and trap Jesus in his words. Now, notice the Pharisees and Herodians, that is a very that should automatically make our ears pop up with alarm because we have these two groups that were otherwise diametrically opposed. They seldom agreed on anything. <laughs> And here they are uniting together, counseling, as it says, together, how they both in unison, in conjunction with each other, confederation in, with each other, how they might trap Jesus. These two parties, Pharisees, Herodians, adamantly opposed to one another on religious beliefs, but especially political beliefs. Pharisees were opposed to Roman rule at all costs, so to speak. They did not think that the Romans had lawfulness over them. They were very devout religious figures. And politically, they were, uh, we would say, the conservatives of the day. And Herodians were a little bit more, perhaps we could say, liberal in their political leanings. And they favored Roman rule and influence over them. They were okay with that. They were okay with a little bit of that influencing their lives. But it's so fascinating how this figure Jesus is so polarizing that these two enemies are now coming together in united front against Jesus. They're so frustrated with him that they're taking counsel together how they might entrap him, entangle him. And notice too, as it says there, they went, the Pharisees, and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians. They sent out, literally carries the implication that they were sending out this group, a collective sort of chosen group of disciples from the Pharisees, along with the Herodians and their leadership, and they were sent out, literally it means, on a mission. They were going out with a directive, with an objective in mind, which is, again, what? <laughs> to trap Jesus. To get Jesus to fumble over his words. This, <laughs> they didn't just run into Jesus. They weren't just walking around and then bumping, bumped into him and were like, hey, let me ask you about taxes. <laughs> this was a very pointed sort of on mission uh, that they were going to. They were embarking on this quest, if we can call it that, because they wanted to get this engagement happening so that they could get Jesus trapped in his words. And they're questioning about his political loyalties and his allegiances. And they pose this question of taxes to him. Listen to what they say. Master, listen to their words. We know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man. For thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Here. They're posing this question to Jesus, hoping that he will uh, admit some sort of anarchy, some sort of aversion to Caesar altogether, and that he will just out himself as some sort of traitor to the throne. And it's so interesting to me because they think that they got him. They think that they have him with this question. Because if he answers no, think about it. If he answers no, don't pay tribute. It would then indicate that he holds some sort of insubordination uh, close to his heart. That's his view. He, he is so insubordinate against Roman rule. And he would be then outing himself as some sort of anarchist who is now sort of promoting a sort of terrorist threat against Rome. 
This would be uh, likening himself to a tr- uh, one who would be committing treason. He could therefore be tried and justly tried for being a, a traitor against, against Rome. And then if he answers yes, pay tribute, it would then seem to indicate that he holds really reluctant views of who the Messiah was. Remember who, what, what everyone was hoping for in this day and age. It's the hope of Daniel. It's the hope of Isaiah. The messianic king who would come from heaven and overthrow the occupying force and raise up Israel from its ashes back into world power and dominance as God's kingdom. It would come from this Messiah. The ancient of days, as it says in Daniel chapter 7. They were hoping for that promise. The Messianic king would come, he would then overthrow Rome, and they would free and they would liberate Israel from their uh, dominating and tyrannical uh, rulers. So if he says yes, he's sort of admitting that he's not that guy. That he, he doesn't hold sort of Israel's national and patriotic interests close to his chest. And actually he's just an apostate. He's not the Messiah that everyone has believed he is. So the Pharisees, they, they love this. They're probably like just rubbing their hands together. Look, we got him. We can entangle him with this inquiry because he will not be able to get out of it. I love, I love what the scriptures say because Jesus sees right through what they're trying to do. Notice verse 18. It says, but Jesus perceived their wickedness. He sees through what they're trying to do. He sees their malice, that, that phrase could read. He, their malicious intent, that they're not really trying to ask him an honest inquiry about taxes. They're trying to entrap him. And he says that, why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? He sees through their flattery. They're not, they're not fooling Jesus. They're not looking for an honest dialogue about political topics. Their motives were poisonous. Their motives were completely uh, deceitful. I love how Jesus just circumvents their dilemma by cutting right through it. Notice what happens. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought him a penny, that is, a denarius. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image in superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then, they, then saith he unto them, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. He affirms, ironically enough, he affirms obedience to both. He asks for this tribute money, the examination of the, the coin that would pay the, the taxes. And once he views it, the implication of Jesus' words is that one's responsibility to God and government are not mutually exclusive things. Which just is a radical notion to these in this day. They are just baffled. It says, and they marveled at his words and they left him and went their way. Church and state are very much tied in this day and age. And the political tensions are getting higher and higher. 
Rome's rule over Israel is recognized as something that ought not to be. It has to be overthrown. Uh, there was uh, a lots of groups that were seeking to do that. And they were actually pinning their hopes on Jesus. And then what Jesus here is now saying is an entirely sort of radical notion that faith in God, the true God of Israel, is not an invitation to revolt. The insurrectionists were just stunned by these words. The political leanings are also stunned, perhaps not as much so, and they're actually liking Jesus' words. And this crowd is quite startled. They marveled, and rightly so, by what Jesus is saying. But I love what he does. Because he examines this coin, and I brought a quarter just so I could, let me see if I can pull it out of my pocket. It's sort of like this. I mean, this is probably small. I don't know what the quarters or the coins, the denarius looks like, but here's a quarter. And he bring, they bring it to him, and he examines this coinage. And he remarks on its inscription, on its image and likeness. And his words, I think, are so poignant and profound that I think they deserve a lot closer examination. Look at what he says again. He says, show me the tribute money. Show me the coin, the the money that pays the taxes, the tribute to Caesar. And they brought it unto him. And he saith unto him, whose is this image and superscription? Here on this quarter, it's George Washington, the beloved bust of George, good old George and examines it, and he asks those in earshot, who, whose image does this coin carry? And of course they have to say, it's Caesar's. Caesar's image is on this coin. Obviously they have to be uh, rightly stunned that what Jesus is here saying, that resemblance being imprinted on this coin, the, the resemblance, the image and likeness of Caesar, that means this coin belongs to him. Resemblance represents ownership. But notice how he, he describes this coin. Notice again verse 20. And he saith unto him, whose is this image and superscription? Image, literally figure or likeness as it is in the Greek here. And Jesus' point is then made abundantly clear. Just as this quarter is impressed and stamped with the image of George Washington, it belongs to our representative government. On that account, this coin that he views, it has been impressed and stamped with the likeness, the image of Caesar. On that account, it, because it bears his image, it belongs, it is owned by him. It doesn't matter what their feelings are in the matter. <laughs> this is his. It's been stamped with his image and likeness. His figure is put on it. Now, you might be thinking, okay, <laughs> that's great. So, so what? what? Uh, I draw your attention to this passage because of Jesus' use of that phrase, which just stands out to me. What he says Show me the tribute money. And they brought, him, brought it unto him, a, a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? A phrase which I think should stand out to you as well. It's perhaps one of the most intriguing in this whole passage. Because you have to notice this. The same. The same Greek words that are here in this passage, which mean image and superscription, reappear in one of the most primary and fundamental passages in the whole Bible. 
Genesis chapter 1. Of course, Genesis 1 was written in Hebrew. But if you go and read, if you, well, if you can, if you can, you can try. <laughs> if you can read the Greek of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, it appears in the same passage. Go to Genesis 1 and listen to these verses. Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. One of the most fundamental passages that we have in the Bible, which come from God. The Godhead, the Trinity, counseling with themselves to make man after his own image, he says. Look at verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. This. This is that beautiful record of the God's head's divine intent to create something, a part of this creation in his own image and likeness. And three times we are told that, that humanity is to bear the image of God. The same word that is then used in Matthew 22. Icon is is E-I-K-O-N in the Greek it is. And here I see this wonderful picture Of Jesus' examination of the coin. (laughs) Again, notwithstanding the very specific context in which that appears, we have this wonderful sort of connection, this connective tissue between both of these passages, which I think is so fundamental to the Christian life, which is this, that just as this coin was imprinted with the king's image and therefore represented the ownership of the king, so too have we been imprinted With the king's image. And therefore we owe our lives to the king. Resemblance represents ownership. We are heavenly fathers. We are made in his image and likeness. Breathed out from him was the spirit into our lungs. And now we have his image imprinted upon our souls. We belong to him. One of my favorite uh, pastors, uh, preachers, Alexander McLaren. Listen to what he says. This comes from one of his sermons and he writes this, which is so remarkable to me. He says, man's destiny for God is unmistakable. Whose image and superscription hath it, said Christ about the coin? Caesar's. Then give it to Caesar. Whose image and superscription hath my heart, this restless heart of mine, this spirit that wanders on through space and time, homeless and comfortless, until it can grasp the eternal. Who are you meant for? God. And every fiber of your nature has a voice to say to you, if you listen to it, that you are God's. I love those words. We could spend so much time delving into the Imago Dei. That the fact that we are made in God's image. But here tonight, I just want to draw your attention to that fact. That your soul and mine and everyone who has ever lived, regardless of their feelings about it. (laughs) They have been born 
in the image of the sovereign king and creator and ruler of all things. Just like those in the day which Jesus lived. Regardless of their feelings about it, that coin was impressed, imprinted with the image of Caesar. And therefore it belonged to him. Everyone who has ever lived has been impressed and imprinted with the image of God upon their souls. And therefore rightfully they are owed, they are owned by him. We've been imprinted with God's own image on our hearts. We bear the image and likeness of this creator who counsels with himself in this wonderful, beautiful passage to make a new creature in his own likeness. A creative act which is unlike any other part of creation. Nothing else receives God's breath into its lungs. And yet we do. Humans We are privileged with this dignity that is not shared by any other part of creation. Again, which I think suggests that we are afforded a prime prerogative of closeness with this creator. A relationship the likes of which the rest of creation is unable to enjoy and delight in. That's what we are gifted with. That's what we are imbued with, with. With this image of God. This is what it means to rightly be human. This is what God in Christ Jesus has come to restore. Because we are the tokens. You and I. Of his creating love. I'm going to make a, a, a man after my image and likeness, God says. This is who we are at the core of our beings. Even those who deny the existence of God, they have been imprinted with God on their souls. The sad reality is those who do not believe in this saving work of God will one day be judged by the image maker. They'll be judged by him. And the saddest line of all is that those who've been imprinted with his image will one day stand before him and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. How sad that there will be some image bearers who will not be welcomed home by the image maker. You see, the only proper way To live as image bearers. We are serving others in love. If you go, you don't have to go there, but write this verse down in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We've been going through this on Sunday mornings. And I find this verse so sort of potent. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart. So that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. That phrase there, he hath set the world in their heart. Literally it means he has put eternity into the soul of man. Those who have been imprinted with eternity have been impressed upon their souls the image of God. The only proper and right use of their lives is to bear God's image in love. Living otherwise is treasonous. Those 
who are not living in the right and proper utility under this impressing with eternity. It is as if they are robbing God with their lives. We were made for God and his glory alone, not our own. This is the design of God and the operation of God. That we, as his image bearers and his most treasured ornaments of creation, that we, yes we, would behold his face and by faith bring glory to his name. You see, this is the operation of God. And this is the sort of design of God. And it's further amplified when we recognize that as this image and likeness, which he has imprinted upon our souls, and that we marred at the fall in Genesis 3, that he himself, the image maker, comes down to restore. That image that we marred by sin. He comes down to renew and, and sort of reclaim and to remedy. The creator uh, comes down into the dust that he made in order to remedy the ruin that we made, that we, his image bearers, made. He comes down to remedy that, to restore that. What we stole, he comes to reclaim. His image and likeness. <laughs> Which to me, as I think about how these passages are connected, it brings so much added significance to me to that wonderful parable from Luke 15 of the, uh, the woman who loses the lost coin. And she furiously searches high and low in her house to find this coin which is so precious and special to her. And when she finds it, she rejoices with her friends. Look, that lost coin, I have found it again. Guess what? That is the Savior's love for you and me. The image, the coin which bears his image, that which we are, his image bearers. He furiously searches for those who bear his image, those who are living in sin. And he comes to reclaim us from the haunts of sin that he might rejoice over us. His image bearers. We who have been imprinted with the likeness, the superscription of God. He comes to reclaim. He comes to restore. He comes to redeem. I just see so much grace in this. Especially when you go to that fact that the word redeem, redeem literally means to buy back. This monetary exchange, except what's exchanged, is Jesus' blood for our sin. This is the gospel. Yes. It, Jesus is talking about taxes. But in a way he is. Hinting at who we are. We are. His image and likeness. And he has come. For us. In a way which we often don't think about. A way which we often don't let come and impress upon our minds. Just how furiously he desires us. 
This is our Savior. The one who is eternal, who comes down into our realm in order to bring us back, to buy us back. He purchased our pardon, which is the refrain throughout scripture. He purchased you and me. I love that this is what scripture brings to mind. How connected it is, how truthful it is. And how everywhere you go, as the old quaint saying is, cut the Bible anywhere and it will bleed the blood of Jesus. Here it is. The blood of Jesus is cut here. <laughs> it spills out from this page. He's talking about an image in superscription on a coin, which reminds us of the image that is on our souls, which Jesus has come to reclaim. Let us pray.